0: Living historians portray many personas, some historical, some not. We have invited a number of such reenactors onto this Seminole Wars podcast program. Their main task is interpretation without judgment. For instance, the black Seminole translator Abraham enjoys a somewhat checkered reputation. Was he double-dealing the Seminoles in the agreements he brokered with the U.S. Army? What might have been his motivations for acting as he did? Should we analyze his life and reputation based on just these key decision points? Do we moderns judge him by today's standards versus those of Abraham's own time, the 1800s? To examine this, we are honored to chat with the distinguished independent historian, James Bullock. Bullock is an ASCAP writer and publisher, playwright and tour guide. At public events, he has portrayed Abraham, one of many personas the professional actor takes on. James Bullock is the recipient of the 2006 Interpretive Guide Award from the Castillo de San Marcos of the U.S. Park Service. He is also the author of the play Freedom Road. He's been a speaker for the U.S. Army and Florida National Guard and has led tours and presentations at Fort Mose for various Florida schools and the St. Louis Urban League. Bullock is also a reenactor in the Flight to Freedom program from the National Park Service. He has acted in community theater in various plays, Today, he discusses Abraham in historical context. James Bullock, welcome to the Seminole Wars.
1: Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here. I look forward to talking
0: to you. When we see you in the appropriate attire and garb, who are you portraying? Who's the persona? Depending on where you might find me on the historical
1: timeline. Starting with maybe a Temuqua village, number of years at the Fountain of Youth, through Spanish conquests and explorations, doing various projects with Juan Gerardo and his researching these figures and so forth. Fort Mose is the place you would often find me over probably many, many years now, getting close to eighteen. Doing the persona often of Captain Francisco Menendez. You might have also encountered me at De Leon Springs doing Black Seminole, similar to that at Fort Christmas. Many of your school systems, Volusia, Marion, and maybe even Levi County, tend to go there, Fort King. If I'm going to do a specific person in that era, I will usually pick Abraham because he was a negotiator for the Seminoles and we do have some historical background on him which allows us to create your platform for what would this person's life had maybe look like.
0: What's the background on how you became familiar with the Seminole Wars, the second of which Abraham played a very large part? Well, by chance in
1: St. Augustine, I've lived very close to a place called Treaty Park. And when my family first moved here, I noticed a somewhat obscure sign, and it said, 1825, the Treaty of Moultrie Creek was signed here, and the number of Indian groups were represented. Well, with a little further research, come to find out it was the largest gathering of Native American peoples east of the Mississippi River. And subsequently come to find out what was being discussed was actually about 25 million acres. One of the people who we know was there was a man named Abraham, and he seems to show up a number of times in the historical record as being a counselor slash being owned by Micanopy, who is of a very prominent Seminole clan. He shows up so often in this role as counselor that you also see the term sense-bearer, someone who I suppose in a circle would have tried to make sense of very complicated issues. So to me, the fundamental point of interpretive historical presentation is in order to do the historical presentation, you have to understand the character that you're presenting, or at least their motivations. So it would seem as though Abraham befriended Asiola. And at some point, the two of them decide that their interests are very similar and that there are a number of people, both former slaves, but let's also be honest and clear that all of the people that would have been following Osiehola and Abraham, who were of African-American descent, were not all runaways. Many of them, as it turns out, by the capture records and various census, seem to say that they were belonging to various Seminole tribal members over maybe one, two, or three generations to the point where they spoke Seminole. It seems as though Abraham may have had a parent or been raised by a Dr. Sierra. Like a Louis Pacheco, he seems to have learned four different languages. A group like the Seminoles, who are facing a constantly changing political landscape, Florida changes hands five different times. They constantly, like all of the tribes east of the Mississippi and the southeastern tribes, are trying to figure out who do we go to to have our grievances addressed? Who do we go to to seek protection under the law? So, in further research about this treaty, I find out that Abraham is able to convince a number of Indians to sign, but it's very difficult and under great duress. And it would also seem under further research that part of the reason for this was that because various officials on the other side of the negotiation table had been holding Abraham's family hostage and that they boldly said to him, get the Indians to sign this or we will hang you. And sell all of your family. So ultimately, over the course of several days, he perhaps persuaded them to realize that, first of all, it wasn't a talk and it wasn't a negotiation to be made with the United States because the United States had come to say so. It's taken four years to gather all you guys together to tell you that now we own Florida and that now you are under United States law and that. Under such law, people of your colors, your testimony is not valid in court. So that kind of means you have pretty much no legal recourse. To me, the figure of Abraham was very interesting. He shows up at the Treaty of Moultrie Creek, but he doesn't abandon black Seminoles. He doesn't abandon Osceola. He doesn't abandon the canopy, stays with the tribe, and becomes known as Swanee Tustadan because of his brave fight, delaying action, at the Swanee River, where his village was on the western side, Kohajo's village was on the eastern side. To give you more background on this, many people focus on the Second Seminole War. This is all well and good. However, really, there are three Seminole Wars. The second Seminole War has the historical personages of Osceola and Kenobi and John Horse and Abraham and and the secession of generals who, going up through General Thomas Jessup, finally captures Osceola under the flag of truce. But the first Seminole War is actually a byproduct of the War of 1812 and the return trip of Andrew Jackson and Tennessee militia and various forces that make an unauthorized incursion into what was then Spanish Florida. These battles subsequently, including what was later called the Patriot War, were, depending on who you would ask, were successful or unsuccessful. But it reduced the territory that the Seminoles had. It perhaps galvanized their resistance more as did the capture of Osceola, and that the remnants of people who would adhere to the armistice, that they found places in what are now, for lack of a better word, reservations, and perhaps certainly not what they would have wanted. Others were actually, depending on your use of words, deported, transported, removed, or immigrated, took their own advice and bought Tickets West, but in terms of the five civilized tribes as they would have been known by Jefferson, Madison, the men of those times, the devastating impact of having given up your tribal ancestral land followed by the giving up of your property value to take a reduced version of something in another place. This was part of the sticking point for the Seminoles because they said, well, it doesn't seem to have gone very well for the other tribes. The Cherokees tried to cooperate and a third or a quarter of them froze to death being marched out to Oklahoma. Choctaws and the Chickasaws and um, a separate band of Creek Indians were relocated to what was then called Oklahoma, which at the time translated to Red Men's and they were all given a little peace in perpetuity, I believe it said something. But the sticking point for the Seminoles was that they had no trust or desire to transport themselves voluntarily or otherwise.
0: And the sticking point for the Black Seminoles?
1: The sticking point for most people of color that would have been classified as of African-American descent was that under the new American system, as well as the English system, it was permissible to break up families for sale. The treatment of slaves could range from what someone would Consider benign in maybe a fantasy sort of way or one in a million kind of case to extremely sadistic. So their willingness to fight made certainly for a powerful alliance. And so that gives you some context that Abraham is a person who represented the Seminoles over several decades, probably as well as anyone could, both in terms of buying time and trying to protect as many people's interests as possible.
0: How does knowing the context shape how you view the individual or how you portray the individual?
1: If I thought that at the end of the day, my research conclusion was that he had made choices for his own benefit, I would have thought of him as being a less honorable person. I'm trying to imagine that there's a day outside of Fort King where he and Osceola are saying, well, any moment now, Wiley Thompson is going to walk out of this fort and we're going to kill him. So the central question revolves around this, is that first, should we be so idealistic to think that any or all historical figures are going to be perfect? The answer would be no. Would the answer be closer to, would all Historical figures typically be deeply flawed that might be closer to the truth. If I were to say Andrew Jackson, to some people, they would say, well, see, he's this. And other people are going to say, see, he's that. At the end of the day, as a historical reenactor, I'm not here to judge them. I'm just trying to portray their walk in time and space so that other people can contemplate that question if that question comes up for them or contemplate the larger question, which is somebody had to negotiate. So if I was in Abraham's shoes, I have to imagine that he was both aware that his decision was going to affect the well-being of his family, but that also, in a practical sense, a few thousand people were not going to be able to hold on to 25 million acres of land. They didn't have an army. They didn't have manufacturing. I think from a certain standpoint, you would look in the same way that Sitting Bull or Geronimo did. There were many times where they negotiated. And perhaps there were many times where they did not negotiate entirely in good faith. So that is both an indication that they were conflicted people, but possibly that they were strategists. At that point, they also realized that even with having accepted the basic principles in the agreement, that as a group, that they were still
0: not protected. Traditionally, the federal government had overseen Indian affairs, but Jackson was deferring to the states, and the states were taking care of Indian affairs in favor of the whites in the states and not of the Indians. This led Jackson to encourage the tribes to move west because they were clearly not going to get a fair shake if they stayed in their own lands within the various other states. And that's just for the Seminoles. There was no carve-out for black Seminoles at the time except enslaving them.
1: For example, what that means is now let's say any of yourself or your listening audience, if there were such a thing as bounty hunter and they had a fuzzy picture of someone who looked like you, and they said, Well, so here we're here and this is you and your name is Toby, we're taking you back. If that only happened once in a million years, it's not a, exactly a big deal except to you and to your family. But apparently, it happened frequently and the incentives to pay bounty hunters and the fact that the images and descriptions of a runaway slave as someone's property were perhaps intentionally vague. I'm looking for someone with this complexion who's five foot six. Ooh. All right. So what if they don't take you? You're like, ooh, boy, dodge the bullet on that one. And you walk home and you go, where's my wife? What do you mean the bounty hunters took her and sold her and to where and exactly what is happening to her at this point.
0: Hmm. Was a raw deal for both the Seminoles and the black Seminoles. However, they did stick together on this and that relationship, well, there's really something to it.
1: I would say that it was both mutually protective and mutually beneficial. In the earliest days of cow keeper, Indians of the Southeast region are trying to adapt to Western expansion by creating a modified plantation, holding to their land through agriculture and cattle. The best and quickest way for them to do that and to get up to speed is to have their own people of African descent. If those people of African descent find that, well, my master is actually this Indian family, I might find that my treatment and the expectations of what can possibly be done are a lot more humane, and that over a period of time, we have created a sense of bond. I would say that this would have always been true, also from the standpoint that the support system of the people of African descent was significant. So you didn't necessarily want anyone in your group taken away, and it was just going to be something that was going to be very contentious.
0: When the time came to resist the U.S. government's removal efforts, the Seminole and the Black Seminole stayed close together and planned operations to resist close together.
1: Coordinated attacks from west to east Florida. So between various Seminole leaders, At the time, whether it was uh, Alligator or John Horse or uh, Micanope, there would have had to have been some level of approval. Asiahol is not a hereditary chief, so therefore he did not have the same authority. One could as easily argue in the case of Abraham that, well, is he not a very... Complicated and perhaps not nice figure because of also the role he plays there in terms of encouraging Asiyahola or perhaps other people to participate in this rebellion? Or would you take the other stand, which is that he and all of the others were actually brave and courageous people who said, Enough is enough and we can't go any further. This is as strong a fight as we can put up for as long of a time.
0: The Seminole and the Black Seminole succeeded in getting a military stalemate with the U.S. Army. It wasn't enough to stop removal, but it did thwart their efforts to remove them. That's when General Jessup decided maybe the military solution wasn't the most feasible to bring about the U.S. government's policy.
1: Here's where some interesting happened.
0: happen. General Jessup begins to
1: see the war, him being, I suppose, seventh in line. He sees the war in terms of supply, and he says, well, I need to build many more forts, even if they're not always occupied, and be able to just expand the territory that our troops can maneuver. And he says, and if I can reach a political solution, then maybe that's better than a military one. So the controversial call to capture Osceola and a group of people under the flag of truth. To some, one would say, well, this is something that was a court-martialable offense, and others would say it was someone who was merely dealing with someone who was capable of terrorist acts. Nonetheless, it would seem as though Abraham is caught in that initial snare. It would seem as though, at some point, Asihola is taken from the group of people who are now being held in the castillo
0: yes the castillo de san marcos that was a spanish name at the time the u.s name was fort marion then they sent other seminoles including osceola to fort moultrie in charleston bay
1: he's been sent south carolina where he will die subsequently a couple of months later there were a number of people 18, I believe, in total, out of the total of 81 captured, who somehow managed to escape from the Castilla. Between legend and story, Wildcat, or the man also known as Kawakachi, is among them. And that supposedly 18 people, depending on who you ask, either brazenly walk through the front door, they bribe someone, They fasted and got so skinny that they got through impossibly skinny slats in the wall, which seems equally improbable. But nonetheless, apparently, a number of people managed to escape, and by telling the story of what had happened to Osceola, actually fuel further fighting.
0: Abraham was not captured and sent to the Castillo in this particular case. However, he was aware of what happened to Seminoles and eventually found himself, among many others, corralled into holding pens before shipment to the Oklahoma Territory. At
1: another point in time, Abraham finds himself again captured, and he is perhaps given the option if you will help us gather up people and tell them that going to Oklahoma is not such a bad thing, we will guarantee your safety in going out west, and to some degree, that manages to happen, not without complications and not without people being captured and stolen along the way, and not even was everyone safe once they reached Oklahoma. There were feuds and scores to be settled from the Creek Wars, and let it be said in the case of Osceola, that even as a young boy that he had seen, I believe, five of his villages burned down. His belief in negotiated settlement was very small if it existed at all. So from that standpoint, I'm not avoiding answering you, but I reached an understanding of Abraham and an acknowledgement that he plays such an important part in the telling of that story that he needs to be talked about.
0: I'm confident that our listeners now have a much more comprehensive view of Abraham and the personal and professional dilemmas he faced in trying to translate and really negotiate with the American army on behalf of the Seminole. Trying
1: to retrofit the logic, it seemed as though to me that he was trying to represent them as best as he could, and that no, he didn't want to say this is a bad treaty, but he probably did. He probably said, I don't know what to tell you, except that they're not going to listen to you. And in all fairness, me as a modern person, I couldn't tell you how much 25 million acres of land is. I'm pretty sure that they had no idea in terms of quantitative term what they were signing away.
0: What Abraham found himself doing is translating and negotiating first for the very lopsided Treaty of Moultrie Creek, which moved the Seminoles to the center of Florida, but then also the Treaty of Payne's Prairie stating the Seminoles had to remove to the Oklahoma Territory.
1: If that's your memory of home and it's being exchanged for some land in central Florida. Now, of course, if you're Walt Disney's land in central Florida is going to be pretty good for you. If it's 1830 something in your Seminole, It's real sparse and hard to say that even if you honored the treaty, that you didn't feel cheated.
0: You alluded to bounty hunters and slave traders. There was a third group obtaining Black Seminole, and that was the U.S. Army. Tell us about their handling of Black Seminoles.
1: When we mentioned another thing that's not so much related to Abraham, but to mention in the role of the military, that in the beginning, the army is called here to keep the peace and protect the Indians. So their mission began to change as the hostilities broke out. They were also apparently unable to fully protect the Indians from encroachment and also bounty. So in those regards, there again, you could judge any of those generals as successes or failures. But in all fairness, you'd have to say, well, what was the context that they were working with? What were the rules in the operational theater? Some, particularly in the early parts of the Seminole Wars, the first, the early part of the second, some of the black Seminoles are veterans of service of English armies, War of 1812, or even earlier. So in that case, I think that there was a degree of begrudging respect. There was also a degree of respect In terms of that, it was understood that the army was composed of people who were sent to enforce certain rules. Whereas people who were there in unofficial capacities were driven by financial concerns and therefore had their own sets of ethics.
0: The army would follow through on the government's policy. But the army did not want to become slave catchers.
1: Right. You had some very vocal arguments going on at the time. John Quincy Adams had a few things to say. Was a very strong advocate of the fact that in his mind, the southern political bloc that was represented by Planter was controlling the argument by stating that these people were such a threat. Other people might have said, well, no one really wanted or could have done anything with Florida then. Why didn't they just leave them alone? But that is inconsistent with the tenets of Manifest Destiny, which is the philosophical belief system which helped support the Indian Removal Act of 1828. And it was further complicated by the fact that during that Christmas holiday of 1835, when 27 plantations were burned down, the People who were previously enslaved on those sugar cane plantations, some of them escaped, some of them perhaps died, some of them chose to go with the Seminoles, some of them were taken, some people would say some of them were held hostage. Not all of them were really prepared to live on their own or more independently than the life that they had lived on a plantation. But there were a number of people from the area in the planner's class whose basic idea was, I don't care if you send the Indians to Oklahoma, but all of the black people belong to somebody around here and they are part of our labor force. So we're not really happy to hear that your negotiation involves removing people of color. And I think to minimize your losses and to realize that there's a couple of things that are pretty huge coming up on the event horizon. One of them is the Alamo and the war with Mexico, and the other is the discovery of gold in California. The national attention, resources, and the generals and the armies will be sent to different places. And I think that General Jessup was thinking in terms of let us expedite matters. This is the best way to resolve what potentially was a dangerous situation.
0: And that was having the Seminole remove with their bona fide property, as the agreement of capitulation stated, so that the black Seminoles could accompany them to Oklahoma. Yes. We do know that the U.S. government paid Abraham for translation services in 1838, which would have been from Florida en route to Oklahoma and then in Oklahoma as well. He only traveled east once more and it wasn't to Florida. He went to Washington, D.C. with Billy Bowlegs third and some other Seminole who were trying to negotiate an agreement with the U.S. government. I would think
1: Now, again, this is conjecture, but that if I put myself in Abraham's shoes, that I would say, you know what? We actually pulled off a miracle and that it could have gone much worse and that it could have not had any kinds of positive resolution. Some people would say, well, there's a conflict of interest, but he seemed to be thinking, how can I continually make sure that there are resources for his people? Now, the scouts. Of that group of Seminoles. Some of them will follow John Horse into Mexico and become so successful as scouts for the Mexican government that they're hired to fight Comanche. Their renown becomes well known and they're hired on the Texas side of the line to where the Negro scouts will eventually morph into the Buffalo Soldiers.
0: James, you're a living historian, a storyteller, an interpreter. Many of us would say one of a kind, but you would demure and say we have plenty of opportunities for other living historians and young people should see the opportunities in entering the hobby.
1: If I were to try and answer one of your questions that your listeners may ask themselves, because I'm assuming that many of them are history buffs and that some of them have considered reenacting. If you are on the fence of that, Let me say that living history provides an experience that will help you fill in the blank. What I mean by that is that I've seen reenactors typically fall into two categories. One are people who are following an ancestral trail. And they will say, well, you know, my last name is Haversham. And I just found out that the first Haversham in North Carolina was in His Majesty's Infantry of Foot. So I really like that, and I researched it, and I found his name, and that's why I do what I do. Then there's another group who are sort of your academic approach to history, in that they're saying this is an interesting era or an interesting occurrence. Let me play a part in it and see what it looks like from there. Well, if you do it that way, then you realize that, gee, those quotes that they were wearing in the Civil War my God, if it was 90 degrees, you're like basically roasting. That's a huge elevation if you're a historian, right? Now you think about Shiloh or Devil's Den. First of all, ask yourself, what was the temperature, right? And then ask yourself, did everyone have shoes? And then ask yourself, did everyone have food that day? Because we can't assume as modern people that things were the same then as they are now. If you've been a reenactor and someone gives you a piece of hard tack, you'll just laugh as, as well as all the people around you because they'll say, well, we'll just wait until you realize that you might not want to risk breaking a filling." or to try and eat this thing. And then probably, yes, it would be better to soak it in a cup of coffee, right? And then if you are a historian, you begin to say, well, gee, I can only imagine what the night before a big battle was like as the boys from this regiment are all sitting around the campfire. There are different times and different circumstances in which the odds were greater. Most people who study history, if they're from Texas, they will tell you there's a group of people who died at the Alamo who actually fought their way into it. You know, I mean, that's either insane or an amazing degree of courage. But you really have to put yourself, I'm not going to say you have to, but one of the ways to really get a full understanding of history is to try reenacting because then, okay, so say, for example, you're a fan of the American Revolution and French and Indian War era, and you get your Kentucky long rifle or your brown best. Now you get to see, well, how hard is it to reload this thing? And what if there's a native person like 20 feet away shooting arrows at me? Well, he can shoot seven arrows in the time it's going to take you to reload. Aha. Well, you read that a million times in a book. But until you've actually stood there with another person grinning at you because they know they're going to kill you in a second, and you go, dang, this thing. How many weapons were found on battlefields XYZ back in the flintlock days with the ramrod still in the barrel, right? And in the heat of battle, they're just like, gee, did I put the powder in? Oh, my God. Gee. That, oh, oh, da and incredible. You're standing in a row with your friends. So essentially, I would also say this in closing, is that the individual person in the presentation doesn't usually understand the academic part. Unless you're a historian, they don't care how many Seminole Wars there were. One's enough. You know, they're trying to figure out what that was all about. For most people to understand that there was a guy named Asiahola, is about as much as they're going to get from the Seminole Wars in terms of education. Good, bad, dreadful, sorry, but that's the reality. If more people came to events or historical museums or parks, that number would go up and you would have a better understanding of who we are as Americans. Because again, let me remind you, I am not here to judge Abraham, even if I'm being a reenactor of Abraham. Right. And as Abraham, I am not there to judge Wiley Thompson. I can only state, wow, I'm talking to my friend in 1835 here. The guy's name is Osceola. And he's really angry because he says somebody stole his wife and family. And and it's Wiley Thompson's fault. And, you know, I mean, I wasn't there. But something happened that changed the course of history. And that's where I think the two groups intersect. That's what people find interesting.
0: James Bullock, thank you for a fascinating discussion and appraisal of Abraham. We'll have you back to talk about other figures in the Seminole Wars. But for now, I just thank you for joining us today for the Seminole Wars podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you, my friend.
0: If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.SummonAwars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Summon Wars podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2022. All rights reserved. Front bumper music The Devil's Garden. Roast 'em. Provided by kind permission of Rita Onman. Back bumper music Second Seminole Win by Jed Merum and Ricky Pittman. Courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.